Today's Hot Forward podcast is brought to you by SSV Limited. From tanks to full brew houses, SSV Limited has got you covered. In just five short years, SSV Limited have established themselves as the go-to partner to help you grow or launch your brewery. High quality tanks, parts, brewing kit and the knowledge and experience to ensure your project runs smoothly from beginning to completion. Their recently opened part shop stocks well over a thousand essential brewing parts to keep your brewery up and running. Visit their website on www.ssvlimited.co.uk. That's www.ssvlimited.co.uk and check out their latest projects. This is Nick Law and you're listening to the Hot Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hotforward.beer is a podcast and website dedicated to the beer industry, supporting budding beer entrepreneurs by gaining insights from experienced brewers and folk within the craft beer industry. So grab a glass, pour yourself a beer, and let's get into this week's episode. Hello, masters of the mash, warriors of the water, heroes of the hops, and victors of the Kavika, and welcome to another Hop Forward podcast. I'm having to get really creative with those intros, so for inspiration, I turn to the Oxford Companions of Beer, edited by Garrett Oliver, which is over a thousand pages, here you go, you can hear it, of uh, brewing knowledge and stuff. So there you go. Um, now, when I was growing up, I remember Mansfield Bitter, not because I drank it, but because my aunt and uncle lived in Mansfield. And I remember clearly driving past a string of pubs belonging to the brewery on the way to their house and seeing these awful yellow and green signs, which, as it transpires, was their logo. Um, Even back then, as a small child and a, a future designer and brewer, a teeny tiny little part of me was dying inside at this utter monstrosity. I mean, to be fair, it was the 1980s and design, especially beer design, has come a long way since the simple days of sheaves, cannons, swords and shields and ashtrays that, lo and behold, look exactly like the brewer's logo and labels. Though, I suppose to be fair, back when you could smoke in a pub, it was probably an exceptional piece of point and sale material. Uh, If you look at the shelves now, or the line of taps in a bar, your eyes are quickly overwhelmed by everything from vibrant colours, zany cartoons and abstract geometric patterns, to bold, sleek typography, minimalist shapes, and corporate clean grunge akin to Kurt Cobain wearing a suit and tie and going for a job interview in HSBC. Ten house points to the person who guesses which Scottish brewery I'm referring to there. Um, Therefore tying in the Nottinghamshire and the design thing. Uh, I was delighted to work with Anthony and the team from Lincoln Green Brewing Company recently, uh, based in Nottingham, uh, to help refresh their brand and bring their core and seasonal range a fresh lease of life, something bold and clean uh, and timeless that, um, as the the one prerequisite was, (laughs) didn't include feathers, pointed hats and bows and arrows. Um... So as I got to know Anthony and hear his passion for beer, running a brewery and five pubs, it became clear quite quickly that here's a man who knows how to brew up a successful, predominantly cask-producing beer business 
I took my podcasting equipment to our next meeting uh, to discuss everything from setting up a brewery on redundancy money, working with a pub co to create local flourishing pubs, uh, talk about Sieber's role in the beer industry and how camera members are hindering and devaluing the I hope you find listening to today's episode as interesting as I did in recording it. Make sure you visit hotforward.beer forward slash brands and check out the work that Hot Forward did for Lincoln Green Brewing Company. And if you're thinking of refreshing your brand or you need something from scratch, please get in touch. I'd love to work with you to create not just a design, but an asset that I genuinely believe will pay you back dividends in the long run and add value to your business. So make sure you check that out and the work we did for Lincoln Green. Uh, Make sure you hit the subscribe button and leave a review and share the podcast with your colleagues, your employees, your friends, the brewery dog. Uh, We've got great episodes coming up over the next few weeks with Matt from Wonder Beyond about high gravity beers. James and Venks from SSV Limited all about brew vessels. Uh, Louisa from Toast about sustainability and the legendary Roger Protz. At Sheffield's Steel City Beer and Cider Festival, which I'm recording this week. Very excited about that. You can follow all the action and join the conversation on social media at Hot Four Beers. And if you feel so inclined, now you can literally buy me a beer uh, by visiting hotforward.beer forward slash support. Um, you can help support the podcast and ensure that we can keep the show on the road and bring more guests on the show and, and reach a much wider audience um, so they can get as much out of this podcast as I'm sure you've been getting out of it as one of our regular listeners so genuinely thank you from the bottom of my heart for, for tuning in every week it's nearly been a year long i can't believe it what an incredible journey it's been uh, right now where did i put my mansfield bitter why have a look for that you crack open today's episode with anthony hughes from lincoln green brewing company All right, just before we get into today's episode, let me tell you about one of the sponsors of the Hot Four podcast, Niche Solutions Brewery Essentials. Uh, you should try their branded AY5 yeast at £29 a pack. It's half the price of traditional strains, and top brewers have said they can't tell the difference. Now, I've personally used AY5 in Emmanuel's, and I've been really happy with the results. It's got a nice clean flavor profile. The fermentation took off like a beast and I managed to reach terminal gravity with my IPA within three days at 20 degrees C, which in comparison to similar yeast strains, I've locked up tanks for a couple of days longer than I'd hoped. This is the kind of dried yeast I personally want to work with. So check out Niche Solutions Yeast and their other bespoke products at nichesolutionsgb.co.uk. That's nichesolutionsgb.co.uk for competitive prices and a quick turnaround, all with personal attention and technical support as and when you need it. Today on the Hot Four Podcast, I'm in Nottingham with Anthony Hughes, owner of Lincoln Green Brewing Company. How's it going? Ah, hello. How are you? Things been well? Yeah, going very well. Good. So when I first heard about Lincoln Green, I, I presumed you were in Lincoln. 
There's a lot of people who do that, I have to say. <laughs> so, so, so when the sat-nav was directing me to Nottingham, I was like, Google's wrong, something's going wrong. Um, but obviously you're based just outside of Nottingham. So where, where, why? Where does the name come from? So we, we yeah, we're based in uh, sunny Hucknall, uh, just north of Nottingham. And the story goes back to 2011, uh, just before we sort of established the brewery. My wife and I uh, were sitting in a pub uh, talking about beer names and we'd kind of come up with the two two classic routes was you, you come up with something really sort of strong and traditional um, or alternatively you come up with something really abstract and funky and we wanted to uh, stick to the sort of strong and traditional uh, side of things and we were at the time and even now to a certain extent I was quite interested in the environment mm. so we were sort of exploring whether or not we could consider sort of environmentally brewing so the word green came out and then Lynette, my wife, then said, Ah, I know, we'll call it Lincoln Green. Everybody in Nottingham knows what Lincoln Green's all about. Um, now, I'm not from Nottingham. I'm actually from Chester, um, sort of the northwest. Um, and so I didn't know what Lincoln Green was, hadn't heard of it at all. She said, Yeah, if you, if you are from Nottingham, you will know what Lincoln Green is. It's the colour of Robin Hood's tights. So I went, oh, OK, um, that sounds quite good there's a bit of a Robin Hood theme that could potentially emerge out of all of that um, so Lincoln Green was born um, the very first question I get asked in any meet the brewer uh, is why are you called Lincoln Green when you're brewing in Ocknall um, so there you go there's the story it's it's the colour of dyed wool and cloth associated with the Rob, Robin Hood legend well there you go so for some of our listeners that might be unfamiliar with Lincoln Green, can you, can you tell us a bit about your setup, your history, how you got into the brewing business? Uh, so I'm not a brewer, um, I'm a home brewer. I, I brewed beer from the age of 18. Um, my dad got me into it because uh, he was very keen on sort of those boots syrup kits. Um, and, uh, and so I sort of started brewing with those, got very, very frustrated that they didn't really taste like beer. So taught myself full mash brewing and it was just a hobby. Um, mm. My career uh, for 30 years was uh, as a retailer, um, so I used to work for um, Arcadia Group um, and also worked for Dolland and H and the Opticians. Um, I got made redundant uh, when Dolland and H was taken over by Boots, um, so I, um, I then sort of found myself the wrong side of 40. Um, out of work, looking for something to do, and thought to myself, I know what I'll do, I'll open a brewery. That's, you do. <laughs> you know, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> so how long ago was this? And that was back in 2000, so the idea was 2011. Right. The reality was that we started trading in uh, May 2012. Um, and it's a 10-barrel kit, uh, started off with two fermenters, started off with uh, myself and Martin, who is still our head brewer. Um, and uh, and we've grown steadily from there. So without any brewing background, how did you bridge your way through, you know, finding kit and knowing what you needed? Uh, because particularly back then, like, it's not like that kind of information was readily available, really. I mean, there was that microbrewer's handbook, was that published back then, or did you come across that? Or? Didn't come across it. Um, what we did do was um, I went up to Brew Lab um, and did their week-long course um, where I met um, a brewery consultant by the name of Mike Hitchin. Mm. Um, Mike um, was a friendly sort who knew where we could source kit from and so we basically um, employed his services for about the first six months roughly, um, 
just to help us get up and running. Um, ultimately, I understood the principles of how to brew beer, but didn't understand how to do it on a commercial scale. Um, and it was literally a case of uh, Mike's help, Brew Lab's help, and then also taking quite a lot of help and support from Nottingham University as well, because uh, brewing science is, um, is, is based just south of uh, Nottingham. And uh, they offer an awful lot of uh, very helpful courses for uh, for microbreweries in the Nottinghamshire area. So we've we've kind of embraced their support right. as well. That's good. So with your background in retail, then how, how has that helped you over the years r- running a microbrewery? Um, from a brewery point of view, um, we always went out into the market with a customer first focus. So if there was ever any hint of any problem. If people weren't happy, then the whole intention was that we'd, we'd resolve the problem. Mm. Um, I guess the, the retail experience really came into its own when we established Lincoln Green Public House Company, um, where in 2014 we opened our first pub. Um, and that was a bit like a bit of a homecoming for me, having sort of spent two years brewing, I was able to go back into pubs and pubs are essentially just shops, yep. shops that sell beer. Yep. So they're good shops um, and people are in a good mood when they're in those shops. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, it was it was that that then sort of started drawing on all my retail experience. So we've now got five, five pubs in total. So, how, I mean, how did you manage to acquire those? Um, because it's not just a straight up free house type arrangement, is it? No, no. All of our pubs um, are all leased. Um, the first one opened in 2014, which was the Robin Hood and Little John in Arnold, uh, a very appropriately named um, <laughs> yeah. pub when you consider what we're all about. Uh, but that was sheer coincidence. Um, it had been closed for about 18 months. It was owned um, originally by um, Scottish and Newcastle, so it's an ex-home ales um, pub. Mm and uh, it was up for sale. Uh, We met um, some guys from Everard's uh, who were basically running the Project Williams scheme and they explained to us that what they could do is buy the property on our behalf, they'd refurbish it for us and then for 10% of the total investment charged as rent we would have freedom of tie on all our cascales on the bar. Uh, which was great. Um, so that's what we did. We we have a pub that looks essentially as though it's owned by Lincoln Green. It's actually owned by Everard's. We mm. pay them a rent for it, uh, but we benefit from um, an enormous amount of cask ale trade that goes through that pub. Do you think some breweries are a little bit reticent to take on an arrangement like that? Because it's kind of with an all or nothing attitude. Either we need to own a free house or not, rather than kind of tying in with pubcos? Um, yeah, possibly. And I, I, I guess to a certain extent, for a while, I used to think exactly the same thing as well, that actually if you're a brewery, you've got to own the freehold on the pub. It's got to be yours. It's got to be free of tie. Um, that's probably a little bit of a an outdated view now mm. because if you take, for example, Wagamama's um, as a brand sold recently for millions of pounds, not one of their sites is owned. So... Clearly, there's some value, inherent value in a in a, an operation that's successfully built around a brand. It doesn't have to be about bricks and mortar anymore. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, I don't know if you know Stu from Yeasty Boys. I don't. Um, but like, basically, their contract brewery. Um, I think there's about four, five, or six people 
that work for East Bush? It's not many. Um, you know, they've got a brewer that'll go and help, you know, either cuckoo brew or help the brewer in the brew they're contracting just to make sure fermentation profiles are all right. Um, you know, and I remember when I first came across them, I was like, oh, no, contract brewing. Ooh, I'm, I'm not sure about this. But actually, um, you know, more and more people are taking on different business models um, where essentially, yeah, they own a brand, although, you know, they, they don't own physical assets and, and capitals. That's not tied up in brew kits or, or bricks and mortar and all the rest of it um, these days. And, um, yeah, it's interesting. I think, I think the arrangements, yeah, the arrangements really work um, when you, when the whole sort of word collaboration kicks in. Um, and for us, collaboration is the approach that Lincoln Green have taken with all of our um, pub relationships that we've mm. had both with Everard's and subsequently with Star Pubs and Bars as well with two, two of our additional sites. Um, we, we think that we get a lot out of the arrangement with Everard's and Star insofar as we've got that direct route to market for Lincoln Green's cask beer trade. Also, we benefit from the fact that the pubs are profit centres in their own right and, and they, make, they make money for us. Mm. So we win on that side of things. But equally, um, Everard's win as well in that they own the Robin Hood and Little John. They receive a rent for it. They also receive some tied uh, wet trade from that particular site as well. So draft products uh, are tied. Um, so they're winning out of it as well. And, and as long as that balance is, is equal and everybody's getting something out of the arrangement, then I don't have any problem with mm. it at all. So how do you think people can find that balance or find those good partnerships to develop? Um, go out, have conversations with people, see how you feel about um, the initial responses that you get from people, um, throw out ideas about what would work for you, listen to what the responses are that come back and try and find a path through. Um, we, our second site with Star Pubs and Bars uh, is the railway at Belper, um, which is our newest pub opening. Mm. And I can honestly say that that took 12 months to come to the agreement that was that worked for both sides uh, and it took huge amounts of effort and you know con long conversations about well will this work can I do this can I do this differently and you know there were a number of times where we sort of stepped back from it and said actually this isn't going to work we're you know we'll we'll you know we'll call it no harm no foul it's yep. it's it's all good um, so lot it's it's conversations be open-minded mm. So what, what are some of the other advantages you found in having a list of pubs that are essentially tied to the brewery? Um, well, the, the, you know, the great thing for us is that um, we used to, particularly in the first two years of trade as a brewery, um, I used to have sleepless nights on a Sunday night thinking, are we going to sell enough beer <laughs> yeah. uh, to break even? <laughs> I don't worry about that as much now because I've got that guaranteed throughput of beer that's going to go through those pubs. So Lincoln Green's profitable on a Monday morning before we've started selling beer to the free trade. Yeah, I was talking to someone recently who said um, he had this revelation that if you own a pub, that you sell more beer through that pub and you retain more of the the income from it. And he was just like, oh, I've, I've just learned that like you sell beer to yourself and that's that's what you should do. And I was like, yeah, I'm glad the pennies dropped. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah, and for us, it's not just about beer. Um, we celebrate everything in our pubs. Um, we co- we call them kind of grown-up pubs because uh, they're not just about cascale. Mm. Um, there are other products that we sell as well. So we proudly sell gins. We proudly sell whiskies. We proudly sell lager. You know. Um, and we're happy to sell all of it because actually all of it's really, really important um, to our customers and there will always be somebody in the customer drinking group that doesn't drink cask ale. Yep. So we've got to make sure they leave happy as well. Mm. So, I mean, what, what's your take on the state of Britain's pubs these days? Because obviously you know, there's all the stats out there and as there have been for the last however many years about you know x amount of pubs closing a week and all the rest of it i mean what why do you think that's happening what do you think the beer and pub industry can do to to reverse those fortunes um i think that the the pubs that have closed are probably the pubs that um would be unviable in the modern age um quite frequently uh, you'll find sort of um old working men club style pubs that were completely reliant on 100% wet sales and it was all about cheap, cheerful beer for the masses. Mm. Um, that the, the Today's age has changed. Consumers who are going out to pubs now are looking for um, more of a trade-up experience. They want something that's premium yeah. and that's something that speaks completely to craft beer, cask ale, um, that's what we make. You know, we make something that is a hand-crafted, artis- artisanal product, um, and it gives people a reason to go to the pub. Those pubs are trading very well. Those pubs that have embraced that premium trade-up experience have got huge amounts of potential. That's what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Is we're looking for the sites that can cope with that kind of premium trade-up offer. Yeah, it's interesting because I know when I first started brewing and reflecting upon it when we went through this recession in 2008 and how people weren't borrowing money so much anymore to be buying a new car, bigger TV or what, or holidays, whatever. And so people start to turn to the small luxuries they could afford, you know, like, oh, I can, I can afford to spend £10 on a luxurious beer in a 750ml bottle. I can afford to go out for a nice coffee or for a nice meal. You know, and, and obviously all those things add up over the month and people are probably spending just as much as they were, but psychologically you're buying something quote unquote smaller rather than something something large. So it's yeah, it, it doesn't I don't find it amazing at all really that, that has come into its own, people buying premium products such as beer or coffee or whatever. Yeah, and ultimately you've got to give people a reason to come out of the house. Because one of the things that struck us when we were thinking about the design of the pubs that we operate is what did we want them to look like? Mm. Um, And if we go back in time, uh, people used to go to the pub because the pub was nicer than their own home. So if they if they wanted to go out and socialise, they'd go and socialise somewhere where it was a nice environment and it was it was lovely. Then of course, uh, you know, we had this huge explosion in people sort of doing up their own homes, and um, we had all these great, fantastic TV programmes that showed you how to you know decorate. And Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen came with his big frilly cuffs, and <laughs> and wasn't he great? You know, and, and all of a sudden we all now live in fantastic houses, which means that we now have to give people a different reason to come out to the pub. Yes, the environment's got to be brilliant. Yes, the service has got to be really good. And yes, 
the products that are available to the customer have also got to be exciting, innovative and interesting to give you that reason to come out. Otherwise, you might as well stay at home. Yeah. So since you opened in 2012, which uh, in brewery terms these days is like an absolute age. Um, like, <laughs> we always think we're young. <laughs> um, and like, how, how have you seen the beer industry change and morph into what it is today? And, and how have you adapted to serve the customers? Yeah, we, we, we opened in 2012 because I thought that there was a bit of a gap in the Nottingham market. Uh, and in 2012, clearly 14 other breweries also thought the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and one of the things that the guys at Brew Lab had been telling me was that, oh, your first year will be really easy because, of course, you're new. Um, you'll be easily be able to get beer on the bar. That'll get you up and running. And then as long as the beer's good, it'll be great. Well, that wasn't true for us because <laughs> there were 14 other people that were all queuing to be new on the bar. Um, so it was tough. It was a tough start. Um, we, yeah, we, we found it really, really difficult for the first couple of years. It started to get easier when we had our own pubs. Um, and the journey's been quite challenging. We've had, for the last couple of years, a strategy of literally sort of um, becoming self-sufficient on our own pub company um, and that's that's got us into a, a good position um, it, it's meant that we've been protected from the huge amount of competition that's out there in the beer market there are lots and lots of really great brewers out there yeah I mean what would you say to someone like yourself but starting now um, like a younger version of you looking to get into the beer industry now and start their own brewery and, and there, there are still people who were doing it? I know the t the take up rate has slowed down quite a bit um, over the last year or so, but people are still looking to set up their own breweries, who are basically reliant on things like micro pubs and um, free free houses and lines in those on rotation once every eight weeks to a blue moon like what, what would you say other than <laughs> the stock answer seems to be don't do it <laughs> that's what we're I was say. just gonna say <laughs> <Don't. there's>, I, <laughs> the, the listeners of this podcast are currently going don't do it yeah but yeah <laughs> um yeah I mean it is it's incredibly difficult you've got to if you're going to set up a brewery now um you've got to be you've got to be different in some way you've got to stand out from the crowd mm. And finding something that makes you, you unique is really hard. Um, so, yeah, unless you've found that thing that makes you completely unique in the rest of the market, then don't do it. <laughs> I was listening to um, Seth Godin, if you've come across him before. He's like a marketing genius, and he's written this book called The Purple Cow. Uh, he wrote, I can't remember how long it was he wrote it. It wasn't that long, like maybe five or six years ago. And his, his argument is if you want to stand out, you need to be a purple cow. But one of the points he makes is that um, people often think that the opposite of exceptional is bad, but it's like it's not. The, the opposite of exceptional is just very good. And a lot of people play it safe and think, well, if I just do something that's very good, then I'll, I'll, I'll be okay. But actually, as you said earlier, there's a lot of very good beer out there. Really is. And you may never try some of the best beers that are out there because the branding is just very good but not exceptional or different or they're unique they don't have a unique selling point um i'd completely agree with that i think if i were to go back in time to 2012 there at that point would was definitely some evidence of not good beer being brewed fast forward to 2019 i very very seldom find um, a badly brewed beer available. I mm. find badly kept beer uh, in pubs, 
but um, but badly brewed? No, nah, not so much. Too many. You know, there are some really great breweries out there now that are producing some really great product. Mm. Um, and I think our collective um, responsibility now is to help publicans to keep beer better. Yeah. Uh, because that will be the thing that keeps us going uh, in the future. Um, you only have to go back to the uh, cask beer uh, report from last year, which was saying that quality is absolutely key. And that's absolutely true. Quality is key. Um, if you know, if if we can help publicans to look after a product that is actually really hard work to look after in a cellar, um, in a job that's really really difficult to do because you've got really long hours and you've got to be the smiling face to the public. It, you know, it's a, think for a second about the role of a publican and it's massively difficult. Mm-hmm. And if anything that you as a brewer can do to help make his life and his job a little bit easier by making things a bit less complicated in the cellar, then we should do that. So what sort of things? Because I mean, I would imagine with you having five pubs, you can go in and and offer training where it's needed. You you can say, this beer needs to be kept like this. Or big company like Thornbridge, for example, I know they have people that will go around training either people in their pubs or people they sell beer to that's how part of Jaipur should taste, this is how you should serve it, dispense it, keep it, etc, etc. But for that, that's not a luxury a lot of brewers can afford. So with the power that they do have, the things they can control and influence, what sort of things could a brewer do to help a, it's, a landlord? It's, it's little things about sort of, it, it's trying to demystify what cask conditioning is and how to properly vent and condition a, a cask of, 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 of ale. I've, I've been into many pubs that have sort of taken a, a cask of beer from delivery and it's ended up in the, on the bar a day later. And you just think, well, that's, there's just no way that the flavours and more importantly, the aroma is going to have developed in a 24-hour period. Mm. How ridiculous is that? So, but a lot of that conversation can actually take place with the publican at the point of delivery in the cellar. Yep. You know, um, even sort of recommending um, simple things like swapping out um, a soft peg for a semi-porous peg overnight to help keep the cask of beer just that little bit longer helps that publican to get a little bit more retained profit out of the cask. Mm. Those conversations can still take place in the cellar. So, you know, why don't we do those when we're delivering beer? Um, Even even if if you go into a a pub cellar and you realise that there's very little beer in there, quite often publicans will literally be operating on a just-in-time kind of basis that... Uh, I can't afford to have that much stockholding, but that then means that they're not allowing the beer to reach its full maturity, mm. that you're not allowing those flavours and aromas to develop. So trying to have that conversation about holding just a little bit more stock can improve the quality of the beer. Again, it's another conversation that can happen in the cellar when you're delivering beer. I wonder whether some people are too English about it, obviously for our UK listeners, you know, um, in that you don't want to go and teach a landlord to suck eggs, you know, and, and, and cause fence, you know, he- heavens above, I say something mm. that's going to cause offence. Um, but on the other hand, um, you might have someone else delivering your beer for you. And you, um, there will be some, there might be a very small minority of people that you might possibly cause offence to. 
But actually, in my experience, I found more publicans more keen to talk about how they could improve the quality of their beer than those that think they know it all. Well, it's, most people are, are quite open to, to help and support, I find. I mean, I, I remember going into a pub once, actually, and it was a, a new customer we'd taken on, and he'd just taken on this micro pub that had um, changed hands from another brewery and it become become free house essentially and um, I took the beer and I, and I started I went took it into a cellar because he didn't have a hatch to, to drop the beer into so I, I had to physically walk you know take it down the stairs and I noticed the temperature was like it was like freezing and I said to him that's really like a not good you know it's nice to have it cold for keg beer but I was like it's far too cold for cask and I said could you pull me off a couple of you know, samples of cast beers, and, and I, I was saying to him, like, because he was going, Oh, that one's really nice from this other brewery. I was like, I've had that beer, and I know how nice it is, but that's far too cold to bring out all the nuances of that beer. Oh, really? You know, and he's like, well, What temperature should it be? And, you know, he was really appreciative of my time to be able to um, to sit with him. And then he ended up subsequently buying more beer offers because, you know, I gave him the time of day to give him a bit of friendly advice on, on, on what to do. Um, I know the last time I came to visit, actually, you mentioned that you're not a fan of micropubs. Um, can, can you unpack that for our listeners as to... It's not so much I'm not a fan of micropubs per se, it's I'm not a fan of micropubs that don't set themselves up correctly. Right. Um, so uh, to, to those listeners out there that might be running a micropub at the moment that doesn't have a proper cellar, um, that's trying to sort of serve beer out of... Um, you know, casks that have been covered with a cooling jacket. Uh, that's not for me. That's not the kind of way that I'd, I'd want our beer to be presented to a customer because it's just never going to be as good um, as as a, a cask that's been kept in a properly temperature-controlled cellar. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's really strictly what I'm what I'm looking for is. So what what can micro pub owners who who maybe have got that set up? You know, and I'm sure some some of these people are enthusiastic about beer, I mean I've been into um, great ones and I've been into ones pretty much like you've described, um, I mean fortunately there aren't many around Sheffield like that, but further afield I've definitely been in those types. And like what what can they do, um, if physically if they haven't got the space, what could they do to improve the quality of the beer, cast beer in particular they're dispensing? No, I do think that um, it doesn't take a lot of space to be able to um, successfully create a cellar area. Uh, so we've got um, one of our pubs uh, in Nottingham is called the Sir John Borlays Warren. Um, and in uh, what used to be an old garage out the back of the, the pub, we converted the garage space into a bar, which required a cellar. Um, and we, we looked at whether or not we could actually essentially connect up the bar to the existing pub cellar and went, no, it's far too far away. That's just going to be ridiculous. So we created a very small space. Um, which is basically a, it's glass walls mm. um, in the corner of, of, of this garage. Um, it's probably about three feet, maybe four feet wide. Um, it's probably about eight feet long. It has a very small cellar cooling fan in it. Uh, it's kept permanently at sort of between 12 and 14 degrees. And um, it's a fantastic talking point because 
it's got glass walls. So customers can see everything that's going on in there. Mm. Um, and it leads to great conversations, but most importantly, it's just a very small version of what's underneath most pubs in a cellar. Yeah, I went, when I used to do brewery tours for Sheffield Brewery, and um, you know, I'd obviously take them from f- field to glass in, in that journey. Nice. You know, it, p- people were always amazed when they looked at the stillage room and all, you know, all the, the, the tubes and you know, fob detectors for your kegs and all the rest of it. And it, like, most people really, really genuinely have no idea how this magical liquid <laughs> comes out of the tap, you yeah. know, that they enjoy so much. And to, to see it, it's sort of, it's, um, well, uh, James Calder took me around the one at um, BRX earlier this year, and I was just a sprawling monster. I was, you know, even I was amazed. And obviously I've, I've come across that kind of thing on, a, you know, just a, a standard scale, but you know, it's, even I was amazed. It's fascinating. Everybody wants to see the how stuff works. Mm. It's just interesting. Yeah. Um, why wouldn't you do it? You know, and it, and and it's a celebration of what we're all about. You know, it's you, you're showing you're showing the world how beer is essentially made, produced, and sold in in pubs. Yeah, love it. Um, so just while we're talking about cast beer, um, you've mentioned before how you feel about camera. Um, so it's, uh, Cameron's obviously an organisation that um, proposes itself to be fighting for the quality of cast beer, but you said that it, you feel that it's harming the quality of cast beer. I mean, that's quite a big statement. Yeah, I think there's. Um, it's let's let's go back to the very beginning for Camera for a second. So 1972, 73, I think, when Camera was formed, mm. um, you'd got the big six breweries, and everybody was. All of those big six breweries were all producing keg beer. And unfortunately, the quality wasn't particularly good and cask was dying out. And Camera as an organisation, for the first 25, possibly 30 years of its existence, did more than any other consumer organisation has ever done to protect and celebrate a phenomenal thing that could have been lost. So... Camera at the time was was a fantastic organisation and hugely successful. I think the the issue for me now is that um, as an organisation, it's now sort of moved away a little bit from um, protecting cask ale and has moved more into a world where it's more about being a discount club. Yep. Um, so I I have been a camera member for a number of years. I'm not anymore. Um, because what finished me off was receiving my membership benefits statement, reading through it and realising that every single thing that was on that membership benefits statement was all about saving money. And for me, that's not what that organisation should be about. It should still be about helping to celebrate cask ale. It should also still be about championing pubs and supporting breweries. Mm. But it feels like camera has moved away from that ideal and is just, as I say, a discount club. That's I feel that's a real shame. It's not true of all camera branches. Um, I would say that Nottingham Camera um, is an incredibly engaged group of individuals who put on probably one of the UK's best beer festivals. The Nottingham Beer Festival happens every October features over a thousand different beers and it's a spectacular event and it never ceases to amaze me that um, an event that sort of 
uh, attracts 30,000 people every year um, is actually run by volunteers mm. and it's the same at Peterborough um, because we've just uh, done a SEBA beer competition down at Peterborough and found exactly the same thing a huge amount of professionalism so there are some very passionate people within camera um, I just think national camera perhaps needs to rethink its direction a little bit. So what were your thoughts on their stance on keg because obviously at the Great British Beer Festival <laughs> for the first time they had a, a key keg bar um, yeah, well, it, it, it all depends upon um, your point of view, doesn't it? I mean, there are some camera members that still vehemently believe that the only thing that they should be campaigning for is, is cask-conditioned real ale. Um, key keg, it's a different dispense method. There's still yeast in there. Um, CO2 doesn't come into contact with the beer. Um, why wouldn't you want to drink that? You know, it isn't isn't all beer in its hugely different formats a good thing let's celebrate it all well that's what I find weird because it's like you can only get certain flavour profiles by having that CO2 bite that you get from a keg or you know a can or whatever and you don't get those flavours in cast beer and then again with cast beer you get the nuances that you won't ever get whether something's caked or, or carbonated in that way and um yeah, I, I just think it's a bit strange. I mean, I, I, I agree with you, to be honest. Um, I mean, Sheffield Camera's great. You know, they, they, um, I've been involved in their festivals and they're, they're quite a progressive bunch. Um, but I, I, I find it quite sad with the attitude, um, you know, as a, as, a, as a whole, I think, as an official organisation. I think a, a lot of people seem to be screaming at them, like, you know, get, get with the times. I think so, and it's it's going to be difficult because, of course, it's a it's a consumer organisation. Yep. So it, there's there's a whole load of different people who want different things from that mm. that group. So moving on um, a little bit for a brewery such as yours, producing three thousand hectolitres of beer annually, like what, what's the next step? Like where do you, where do you go when you reach this level where you've got eight staff and all the initial seed money, I presume, has been has been spent, but you want to kind of keep growing. Yeah, the, 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 the plan is to continue to um, organically develop our uh, pub estate. So um, we have a plan that sees us open uh, an additional site each year. Uh, we don't want to run at it too hard because we want to make sure that uh, when we open a site that we, we make sure that it's properly bedded in and that it's, it still reflect, reflects the philosophy and the values that we have for our pub company. Um, so we want to make sure that our pubs are considered to be great pubs. Um, and that will help the the brewery to organically grow through its own pub estate. But at the same time, we're also um, about to place an advertisement for a free trade sales rep. Mm. Um, our um, our beer sales uh, to free trade to wholesale has has almost entirely been developed so far over the telephone. And we live in an industry where actually face-to-face -face contact is really important. Yeah. Um, and that's the bit that we've we've not necessarily focused on. So that's that's the, the part that we're now looking for. So um, if there are any free trade sales reps out there that would love to come and apply and work for a progressive uh, brewery, please uh, please apply. <laughs> I um, I think you've hit the nail on the head there with what you just said about it being face to face. Because I have so many conversations and I've experienced it myself for many years. Um, the whole you know, picking up the phone on a Monday, trying to you know harass. Poor, poor landlord <laughs> on the other end 
um, you know, and most landlords now are just like, I won't pick up the phone, email me. Completely. And then they won't even look at their emails. Um, and you've got to find all these new methods and ways to, or you think you've got to find all these new methods and ways to um, sell beer. And actually, you know, the human interaction face to face does wonders. It does. Um, it's a peop- this is a people business. Mm. Um, beer is inherently a social product, it's a, something that we enjoy in company of others. So why don't we continue to self on a face-to-face basis? Of course, it's the right thing to do. Mm. Do you think that because everything's so fast-paced these days, and when you know when you're in a business, you're always kind of like doing it, doing it, doing it, that actually um, you can get snowballed into that. Oh, I've got to get this done, this done, this done. I haven't got time for all that stuff, and actually you're not doing the thing that's really important. Yeah. Um, because you, you, you're dealing with other more quote-unquote seemingly urgent issues yeah I think it's it's when you run your own business it's really easy to fall into that trap of of literally being busy fools and doing stuff that as you say is you is urgent and important um, but the I suppose the clever business people are the people who take a step back from it every now and again mm. people that take time off the people that sort of put a deliberate pause point in where they say no actually I'm going to stop and I'm going to go back and I'm going to look at exactly what I'm doing as a as a business and is it the right thing is you know is this route to market the right route for me you know um, are there other routes that I should be exploring mm, absolutely so how, how do you plan and forecast for long-term growth I mean I, I would imagine with with a background like yours in retail you, you've got some of the necessary skills and insights already working in your favor but for, for for those who are in the industry, maybe with a completely different set of skills, whether they've got technical knowledge on beers and dispense or creative skills of brewers or whatever, like how, how can they take a, a long-term sustainable approach other than standing back and observing? Because once you've stood back and observed, you know, which if you take the time to do, and I, I do with my business, I can clear my head and think, right, that's not working, that is and that is, but then you've got to go back into it and implement some structures to do that, so like, how how do you how does Lincoln Green go about doing that to ensure that you are building a successful future? So, uh, so there are many different ways that we do it at Lincoln Green. One of the things that we do is um, we have a board meeting, um, which we uh, we find um, incredibly irritating and annoying to do, but an incredibly good discipline of reviewing our business. Mm. Um, Similarly, uh, we also take time out to go and look at what's happening in different cities. So once a month, we'll go and visit somewhere like Leeds or we'll go to Manchester or go down to London and we'll go and try and understand what's happening elsewhere, both in terms of pubs, but also in terms of beers on the bar and other breweries and see what they're doing differently. Um, and my role as, uh, as a trustee for CBA um, in the Midlands is also incredibly helpful because um, attending the CBA board meetings means that we get um, input into the industry as a whole and get involved with conversations that are taking place about stuff that's going to affect the beer industry coming down the line. Mm. And I've always had the view that you always get out what you put in to something, and for me, CBA was was exactly that. You know, I've, I've put effort into to being a member of CBA, and and 
in return have, have, have you know gained a lot of knowledge uh, as, as a result of it because at the end of the day I've only been in this industry for seven years mm. you know there are some really experienced individuals that have been in the industry for, for a lot longer than me why do you think that the uptake to CBA which has got around 750 members isn't as high as it probably ought to be given that there are over 2,000 breweries in the UK? Ooh, that's a tough question. Um, I think that CBA when I joined in 2012 was a very different organisation to CBA of today. Um, I remember going to uh, my very first regional meeting back in 2012 and I came out of it feeling like I'd been talked to as a naughty school child. Um, the, the regional meetings were not particularly um, engaging or embracing of, of, of new brewers at that time. There were some long-standing people that were quite critical of people that were entering the market mm. and taking their share. And so I think that perhaps didn't do SIBA a lot of good at the time. But... The world's now changing, and uh, some of the stuff that Seba's doing now, in terms of particularly around um, the uh, the challenge around small brewers relief, I just think is essential. Who, if Seba doesn't do it, who's going to do it? Yeah, you know, and and if if you're not part of the trade organisation, then well, then you haven't got a voice. You, you know, Seba offers that opportunity to represent brewers of all sizes. That's yeah really small guys that are doing less than a thousand hectolitres per year right the way up to people that are doing sort of more than 30,000 hectolitres per year. SIBA represents everybody's needs and that also leads to another conundrum. How can you represent everybody's needs when the needs of a 30,000 hectolitre brewer will be completely different yeah. to those of a thousand hectolitre brewers? And that's that's the bit that some people struggle to get their head around. Yeah, that's a tough cookie for James Calder to, uh, to crack it. <laughs> <Bless is. laughs> um, so, uh, what, what do you think the future holds for the, the pub industry in our nation? I think the future's bright. I still do think the future's bright. Um, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a hopeless sort of optimist, but I don't think we will ever reach a point where people don't want to go out to socialise. Um, they might be doing it a little bit more in coffee shops. There might be a segment of the population that don't drink alcohol at all, but who's to say that pubs have to only sell alcohol? You know, we've we've got every single one of our pubs has got a coffee machine in it. So I openly welcome anybody that wants to come in and have a cup of tea. Yeah, <laughs> that's absolutely fine. Mm. Um, the point is, we've got to remember that pubs are places to socialise. Yep. I guess you touched upon this earlier. The culture's changed massively since the 1960s. So when you think about all the pubs that were on the corners of you know roads then, um, in our neighbourhoods, you know, or next to the factories and industry, yeah, people would go down in their droves after being down pit or wherever, having a pint or five before going home. Whereas obviously society's changed massively now. So I think it's yeah, I think it's really important that pubs do embrace that they, they they welcome the whole family um the whole family unit because i know that's where i for, for the most part these days when i go drinking it's it's in the context of me and my family more than going out with with my mates because that's the life stage i'm at mm. so i think that there's that you've got to find your niche within the market and you've got to reflect the needs of whatever 
your market is looking for. Mm. And that might be that traditional pub where people have come out from work, they're going home and they pop in for a pint on the way home. That's quite a traditional way of using a pub. But equally, there are city centre locations that do things completely differently and put on a bit of a show. Um, I'm a big fan of um, Alchemist uh, yep. as a as a concept. Now, obviously, that's got nothing to do with bar, uh, with beer. It's all about cocktails. But what if we could work out a way to make beer as exciting as the Alchemist makes cocktails? Mm. You know, wouldn't that be incredible? It'd be great. See, I, I always think that people who work in any any industry, well, obviously, this is all about brewing and beer and the pub industry um, should should look outside of their industry for inspiration you know should should look to what what's who are the disruptors in footwear yes. who are the disruptors in sports equipment and see what all these different industries are doing in their context and then snurtle the best bits from those and draw it into your own because actually that's where you get you become a market disruptor because you, you, you're thinking outside the box as far as um, the, you know, the way that an organisation is set up, or the way they approach a product or a service. Yeah, I think I think anybody that finds themselves sort of doing the same thing every single day needs to sort of catch hold of themselves by the scruff of the neck and go and do something completely different and take themselves out of the rut, because yeah, you're on a you're on a path to failure. I'm afraid. Yeah, one of the. Um, one of the things we had up in our office when I was at Sheffield Brewery um, was a picture of Einstein and a quote that I printed off which said the, the definition of madness is doing the same thing again and again and expecting different results. Absolutely. <laughs> and I, I used to say to uh, Paddy, who's st- still doing sales there, I was like, every time you pick up the phone and think that is the only way you're going to get new customers, look at that. <laughs> look at that and, um, and remember, you know. And, yeah, completely agree with that. Yeah. So, where do you think beer then is as a product and a drink is heading over the next few years? Because obviously we've seen a massive shift over the last five years alone. Uh, do you know? I I I think it'll it'll continue to sort of split into two paths, um, both of which will remain equally um, popular. There's the so if we take for example, and I hate using the word craft, the craft route of really unusual diverse beer styles where well I've got an imperial stout with tonka beans in it and I've brewed this beer with donuts and I know it wouldn't be great so but you know that the exploring diverse interesting unusual beer styles will continue to have a huge amount of interest for a big chunk of the population but similarly every time I thoroughly enjoy a really amazing imperial stout I will be reminded of um, my recent holiday up in the Lake District where I went to the Black Bull at uh, Coniston and I had a pint of Coniston Bluebird and I sat drinking this pint of Bluebird and went, at the end of it I went, I'm having another one of that. I hardly ever buy the same beer twice but that beer is so great and so beautifully traditional, so perfectly balanced that I want another one. And there's still a home for beers out there that do exactly that. Everything doesn't have to be about, you know, raspberries and Belgian yeast strains and stuff. There's still a market out there for a really good traditional product. Mm. Um, So I think both paths will continue to be really successful. 
Yeah, the, the way I often summarise it is there are beers you experience and beers you drink. And, I, I, you know, I do love the beers you experience. You know, they're great, but would I go back to them more than once? The, I can only put my finger on one beer that I've quite a great experience I've gone back to again and again, and that was um, Buxton and Omnipolo's collab at Yellowbelly. Which oh, obviously is, is which yeah, is unfortunately uh, ceased production now. Yeah, stunning beer, though. You, you know, amazing beer, but that's the only one. And time and time again, I will go back to the same beers or even just beer styles. Um, and I've even found a hankering for best bitters recently. You know, I like it's, for a long time. I was like, oh, Twiggy Moss beers. Don't want that brown muck. But actually, if you get good a good best bitter. You know, there's, there's, there's really nothing like it, and it's, it's part of our heritage and stuff. And I, I've started to appreciate um, all the, again, when you get a good one, the complexities of brewing something that can seem one-dimensional and simple, but actually isn't. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm still very partial to um, a pint of Timothy Taylor's Landlord. Oh, yeah. If, if Landlord is kept in great condition, and it's a tough old one to sell her yep. but you know if it's kept in great condition it's still world beating beer you know there's a reason that's won champion beer of britain that many times yeah because it's, it's good it's a, and it, i could sit and drink several pints of it and not not be veered off onto onto any other beer in mm. in, in one session yeah i had one in the pembury tavern in london which is the pub that five point zone it was just it was sublime utterly amazing it's the beer that the word balanced was invented for yep absolutely <laughs> Brill well th- thanks for being on the podcast today um, how can people find out more about Lincoln Green Brewery and sample your beers and take them home with them yeah so um, you can find out more about us at uh, our website which is lincolngreenbrewing.co.uk um, we've also got the five pubs which are the Robin Hood and Little John in Arnold um, we've got the Sir John Borlase Warren at Canning Circus in Nottingham uh, we have got the Station Hotel in our hometown of Hucknall then we've got the Brickyard at Carlton and the Railway at Belper. Come and come and say hello and come and drink a pint and, uh, and you'll be welcome with open arms. Happy days. And if, if you're looking for a job. Absolutely. And, and if you are. Being taken. <laughs> then, then give us a ring. Amazing. Brilliant. Thank you. Cheers. Today's Hot Ford podcast was brought to you by SSV Limited. From tanks to full brew houses, SSV Limited has got you covered. Visit their website on www.ssvlimited.co.uk. That's www.ssvlimited.co.uk. And check out the latest projects. Support for today's episode also comes from Niche Solutions Brewery Essentials. With no minimum order, competitive prices and a quick turnaround and technical support as and when you need it, Niche Solutions GB are the perfect fit for you and your business. Visit nichesolutionsgb.co.uk to find out what they can do for you. Thanks for tuning in to the Hot Forward podcast this week. Don't forget we're here to help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. So hit the subscribe button for more insights into the beer industry. Connect with us at hotforward.beer or through our social media channels at hotforwardbeers. Until next time, cheers. Hi,